0: And the praying. Thank you so much for the leading that you've blessed us through your servant Larry. Thank you so much for the leading you've blessed us through your servant Conrad and these musicians. And thank you so much for the privilege we have now to be led in your word, to worship over the word. I pray for those without a purpose for life, it emerges out of this very few minutes we're studying Revelation 10. For those who wonder what the church should be doing or wonder what they should be doing, give answer, give clear direction give bold, clear, thunderclap of answer to people's lives who need purpose and direction and inspiration and motivation to live in these last days. I thank you for your plan to do that and much more than I could imagine or ask by the proclaiming of your word. Help me be faithful. Help me be balanced biblically. Help me be careful Help us all to hear from the voice of your Holy Spirit through your word which he wrote. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Less than a week ago, on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, there was an evening talk seeking to answer from the Bible for any students who wish to attend the question, what is a woman? That's a question in our culture today. Might as well have something like that at UW-Madison for somebody to come if they want to to hear. One of those who planned on coming was a young student who he and his friend decided that they would read from the Bible on the sidewalk outside the building where this talk was going to take place ahead of time. So they brought a little microphone, a little speaker. And they were, not loudly, but loud enough for a crowd to gather, reading from the Bible. And all they did was read from the Bible. A, a group of protesters gathered, one with a big drum, pounding it in, in the face of the young kid reading the Bible. Another with a bullhorn that had one of those sirens on it. And the siren went full blast into the microphone and the ear, trying to drown out this young man reading his Bible. He faithfully stayed reading his Bible. Good for him. And finally they knocked it out of his hand and started tearing it apart, those who were in the protest group. They tore the Bible apart. And the last act of mockery and opposition and rejection that one of the protesters did with this now torn apart Bible and the young man had walked away and taken their equipment and they went inside the building is he started eating the pages. Like... You're not going to read this one anymore. I'm going to get rid of this Bible. It's nothing but food to my stomach. And as I saw the picture of that kid doing it, I'm thinking, yes, Lord, make it food for him and save him. Make him to repent and be one of yours. Make everybody there to have heard the word of God, and even though they hate it with holy hatred right now, make them to love it unto salvation. I couldn't bear, and I got no permission from the Holy Spirit last Sunday to stretch out the the six of the seven trumpets into two Sundays. So they were into one weighty Sunday. Judgment's coming. There's a, there's a sense inside me and you that judgment is suitable and fitting. There's, a, there's a, a glory about the goodness and justice and holiness of God that says judgment is suitable and it's fitting. For judgment to fall swiftly and soon, all Righteousness will be established in the universe. The scales of the balance of justice will be matched. There's judgment coming. So what should we be doing when justice in the form of wrath and judgment comes? When God sends forth the effects of all the seals that we saw in earlier chapters, all the trumpets that we plowed through this last Sunday and and the seventh trumpet is about to be sounded, what should we be doing? That's the question John is asking and the Asian churches, the seven churches representing the rest of us, that's the question. What should we be doing when judgment comes? How should we respond to someone who who thinks that they can devour and remove and get rid of and mock the word of God by eating it? What should we do for that person? What should we do when we come online and, and see horrible things or we listen to political talk and it's so reprehensible? What should we do? Should we retreat? Many are suggesting that. Let's retreat. Let's run away. Pull the covers over our head. Raise the drawbridge. Circle the wagons. I can't bother getting involved in the cultural political process The options are too reprehensible and disgusting. I'm not going to make myself even aware of the evil that's brewing in dark places and threatens my well-being and that of my family and the gospel. I just prefer not to know. That's one way to respond. Is that the best way to respond? No, it's not. Why is it not? Because Paul said to the Corinthians, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos, Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Meaning, how can you run away from your inheritance if it's God-given and yours? You see the logic? If it's already yours because you're in Christ, don't run away from it. Should we respond with frenzied fighting? In the fog of war, should we just shoot our arrows in any direction and shoot our bombs in any direction? Go online and type out our harsh words, let them fall where they may. Are we to be polemical and angry, rabid dogs, devouring error and foolish ideas wherever we can find it, sniffing them out and diving right into political wranglings. Is that our answer? No. Why? Because Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Do we respond with clever Gnostic knowledge We're going to outsmart them. They're smart, but we're smarter still. They're using dark arts. We're going to get beneath that. We're going to be more clever than they, more devious. Are we to simply beat them at their own game with our intellect? Why not? No, and why not? Because Paul instructs us by the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 14, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. He also said to the Ephesians, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Ephesians 5.11. So what must the church be doing? What must we focus on? What what do you want the landing to be found really good at when Jesus comes back? What should we be doing when Christ comes back? What do you want to focus your life on so that your your parenting and your relationship with your friends and all that you're doing at school and all you're spending time and money and dreams thinking about your your marriage and your dating and your singleness what should all that be focused on what should the church be doing as judgment falls as the trumpet blasts are blasting as the seals are being opened As we'll see in coming messages, as the bowls are being poured out, what should the church be doing? John is asking that question, and the Spirit of the living God inspires the vision of Revelation 10 to answer that question. It's the focus of the life of every faithful believer. It's the focus of the life of every healthy and faithful church. It's the focus of the life of every ministry. Ultimately, and it's the focus of the entire global church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ alive on the planet today, what I have found is the activity modeled and commended here for John, and John also, the seven churches, and by virtue of them, us also, is something I've seen in the wrestlings that I have engaged with in Revelation chapter 10 for A long time, but most pointedly and intensely this last week, I'm going to suggest something to you. I haven't read this in any commentary, so be careful. You test this. I'm going to read a passage of scripture that I think is the thematic, overarching answer to what this chapter teaches John and us, and then I'm going to show it to you in four simple statements. What I think John is hearing here, and we through him, in this vision, glorious and intricate and beautiful and apocalyptic and otherworldly and detailed, is exactly what Jesus meant for his disciples, including John, to hear in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Listen carefully, but listen with Revelation 10 open in front of you. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All authority, all sovereign authority is mine. Go make disciples of the rebellious nations, the ones who will kill you, the ones whom I am judging baptize and teach them to obey my word and I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age, even to the seventh trumpet. That's what I think is happening here. Now that puts you in a crisis. Uh, Why? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about that. (laughs) I don't know if that fits. Sounds like you're adding something on to the Bible that came way before it in another writer. Yes, yes, I am. Maybe God, maybe God will give grace to me as I try to unfold this chapter and show you how the very truths behind Jesus' commissioning of the disciples in the church to make disciples out of his authority of all the nations by by means of the word, that's exactly what I see God telling John to do here in Revelation 10. You'll have to weigh and test as we walk through this chapter you know the structure of Revelation. You know that there were six seals and then there was an interlude between the sixth and seventh seal and then the seventh seal fell. The interlude between the sixth and the seventh seals was there to say, just like the word seals, and I think this is just how kind of God to write the Bible this way, there were seven seals and after six were opened, then there's the sealing of the church. The church is sealed. So you can think of the seven seals and go, oh, that means he's protecting me. He has saved and is holding me fast. I'm secure. I'm eternally secure. And I know it and believe it, and he teaches it. The six seals and the seventh to follow prove I am sealed in him. He can let come whatever judgment will come, and I'm preserved and protected in the midst of it. Praise his holy name. Now the trumpets. The same thing. There are six trumpets, and they were brutal and difficult to walk through. But we walk through them all in one setting. And after the sixth trumpet, there's also an interlude before the seventh trumpet. And what am I to learn from God during this interlude about the church? That not only are we sealed, but what we're supposed to do is take to our lips the trumpet and blow the trumpet of the gospel to make disciples. Seals, I'm sealed. Trumpets, I'm a trumpeteer. I just love the way the Bible is written. I love the way the Bible is written. It's a kind pastoral word of encouragement from the Holy Spirit to John. It's a recommissioning of John. It's John saying, there are people among the nations whom I am drawing to myself. Go to them. Proclaim the gospel to them. Be found proclaiming the gospel when my judgment falls. Don't let the fog of war make you do anything less. Focus your life, Brent, Kathy, Ruthie. Focus your life, your family, this church family, elders and deacons, ministry teams of all sorts and kinds, on the making of disciples. Do you have a way of sharing your faith quickly, speedily, and swiftly that's authentic to you and and faithful to the Word of God? Learn one. If you don't have one, we have lots of people in this church who would love to teach you how they share their faith faithful to Scripture and true to their own experience. We as a church must gain and be trained and equipped and strengthened so that we can share our faith easily, excellently, faithfully, truthfully in any setting because there's going to be people who come and push this Bible out of my hand and right down on the floor here they will stomp on it, tear it apart, and they'll eat it and I'll say, I hope you find it delicious. If I were to put it in a sentence, my summary of Revelation 10, it would be this. Go hard after God by preaching good news to the nations, even when judgment comes. Go hard after God by preaching good news to the nations, even when judgment comes. The seals showed us we are safely sealed in Christ, and the seven trumpets show we are to blow the trumpet of the gospel till he returns. John is here being renewed in his commission as an apostle. That's what's happening here. He's being renewed mid-letter by this vision to say, I know it's hard. I know the church is under duress. I know there are more bitter and difficult things yet to come. Stay faithful, John. Take the word and eat it, as we heard already read. It'll be both sweet and bitter to you. Stay faithful, John. Stay faithful, church at the landing. Stay faithful, believers, in the hearing of my voice. Let yourself be focused on going hard after God by preaching the good news to the nations, even when judgment comes. Here are my four sentences that I observe these four truths out of Revelation 10, really restating in my mind Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Sentence number one, Christ holds all sovereign authority, so give the good news. Sentence number two, God kindly delays judgment, so give the good news. Sentence number three, God's judgment may fall at any time, so give the good news. And finally, sentence number four, the nations are lost, so give the good news. Now let me show you where I get them from the passage. Look at verses 1 and 2. Christ holds sovereign authority, so give the good news. Then I saw another angel, a mighty angel, coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. What's this an image of? Some say Christ. It can't possibly be Christ. Why? Because in just a moment, he's going to take an oath in the name of God. Christ would never have done that. Christ is never called an angel. Oh, but there are at least four mighty angels. This word mighty in Greek is, is the transliteration of the word uh, "gibor." By which Gabriel is named in the Old Testament. It means mighty and strong in a class above all other angels. This mighty angel is coming down from heaven because he's been with Christ. It's as if he says, I know Christ, I hear his voice, I see him as he reigns, the lion of Judah and the lamb on the throne. And I'm coming to show you and reveal to you a vision of his authority. How does he do that? He's wrapped in a cloud. The glory of the Lord that covered the temple now covers this angel, revealing that the glory of the Lord is not just for the building uh, of Israel or its land, but for all the earth. He's got a rainbow over his head. Ezekiel 1 says only God has rainbows around him, and we already saw in Revelation 4 that the throne of God had a rainbow around it. But this is the mighty angel who stands near God, and the angel brings God's rainbow with him, and the rainbow always means, I caused the storm, God says, I'm the one who stills it. I caused the judgment on the earth for those who've rejected my son and, and, and my mercy, and I will ultimately have mercy on them. There's, there's sweet kindnesses built into this vision. The mighty angel, he comes down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, rainbow over his head, and then it says, his face like the sun. We know from Revelation 1.16, Christ's face shines like the sun. It's the fulfillment of the ironic blessing. May your face shine upon us and be gracious to us. The face of this angel shining means Shekinah glory, rainbow, storm-stopping. Grace is coming to the earth right after the sixth trumpet and before the seventh. Proclaim, church. Proclaim, John, the good news, for I bear witness to my Savior and King and yours that our Christ is sovereign. He has legs of pillars of fire, which probably mean this vision has this angel about a thousand feet tall. That's a big angel. The pillars of fire were used by God to lead Israel out of captivity in Egypt. And now the pillars of fire are the leadership by which God mercifully leads the true Israel out of captivity in this sinful world. And notice he has a scroll in his hand. This is the same scroll that Christ alone was worthy to, un, to, to take and open its seals. And now the scroll is open. The scroll is open, the seals and the trumpets are being blown, and all the events of God are taking place and being executed on the earth. Judgment is coming, and yet, because Christ is sovereign, John, take the word and go to the nations. Go hard after God, proclaiming the good news among the nations, even when judgment comes. The angel's feet straddle land and sea. There's no nation. There's no nation on the other side of the sea. There's no nation as far as you can go on land that's outside the reach of God's saving, mercy, and grace. Go to the ends of the earth. That's what land and sea means. Absolute sovereignty is I'm straddling both. There's going to come a beast out of that sea. I rule over him. There's evil things that are going to happen on the land. The, the, the judgment is going to come, and the blood is going to ride in the streets as high as a horse's bridle. I rule over all of that, says God, by this vision. This is a vision of the mighty angel of God representing God himself. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said, you remember. Let your, heart, let your heart rise and soar with joy in the vision of this almighty angel signaling the almighty sovereign role and rule of Christ. This angel is a walking sermon that God rules on the earth, and that's meant to comfort and encourage and embolden and enlarge the heart of a beleaguered apostle and a beleaguered gathering of churches, including us. If you don't have a massive vision of the glory of God, Revelation 10 size, you will not be ready for the judgment that is to come. The most important factor about your walk with Christ right now is what you think about when someone says the word God. The quality of your life that most determines how you will stand faithful, victorious, pure-hearted, clean-handed, rejoicing, marching, thanking, and praising, even during the judgment which is to come, is what you think about God. Do not settle for lesser counterfeits, mistakes, errors, and compromises to this vision of the glory of God. Second, God kindly delays judgment, so give the good news. That's what verses 3 and 4 are about. God kindly delaying judgment let's look at it, and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion, like a lion roaring, when he called out the seven thunders sounded. When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, John speaking, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, I think this is Christ, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Curious, isn't it? When the angel, thousand feet tall, legs burning like pillars of fire, face shining like the sun, opens his mouth, First thing that comes out is he roars like a lion. Which means I have just come from listening to the Lion of Judah, and you've you've heard my accent. I've been in his presence, I hold his scroll, it's now open, I know his heart, I hear his voice, and I obey his will. With the angelic roar, earth shudders and quakes, all the demons fall, like locusts zapped out of the sky mid-flight, as by a global electromagnetic pulse. And the people of God tune their ears to listen with rapt attention to the messenger of the living God who speaks in the accent of the line of Judah. His roar apparently called forth the rumble of seven thunders. Thunder always means judgment in the Old Testament. That's not hard to notice. Seven thunders means God's perfect and complete judgment. But these seven thunders are not enacted. They're not let loose. These seven storms, as it were, are held back and they're sealed up. The voice of Christ from heaven says, I hear your roar. Nice roar, angel. Sound just like me. But seal up those thunders and don't write them down, John. They're not to happen yet. Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write them down. Do not enact them do not execute them. Some judgments are only for God to know. God's full judgment is coming. I'm convinced that one day those seven thunders will unfold themselves on the earth. God alone knows when. We don't know. We dare not pretend to know. We dare not create charts or write books predicting the arrival of Christ or what these thunders mean. We don't scour the Internet looking to form a timeline. There are seven thunders, but we don't know what they are. They're sealed. Let us humble ourselves. God knows we don't know. We dare not pretend that we do. God will make sure that every specific prediction we make proves both wrong and us foolish The only way to honor God as Scripture's author is to arrive at our understanding of what these things mean by the rest of the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, not according to man's inventions. Judgment is delayed. Seven thunders are not able to crash upon sinful man. God kindly delays judgment, so give the good news. Think of the patience of God on the earth. Think of the patience of God over China or over Russia or over Iran or over North Korea. But as soon as you think that, then you have to say, think of the kindness and patience of God over America. Or if you say that, you have to say, think of the kindness and patience of God over my family. Or then you must say, think of the kindness and patience of God over me. Judgment is delayed. So give the good news. As long as it's called today, somebody needs to get saved through you. As long as it's called today and the judgment still is held, sealed back by the sovereign voice of Christ telling John not to write it down. I mean, if I was John, I'd say, whoa, okay, scary stuff coming, seven thunders, but I'm not even going to write it down. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Third, God's judgment may fall at any time, so give the good news. God's judgment may fall at any time, so give the good news. I get that from verses 5 through 7. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what's in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. This isn't in contradiction at all to the seven thunders. God has a judgment that's going to fall when he deems best. But we're told here by this oath that the angel swears, there is going to be no more delay. And he swears by the very identity of God as creator and sovereign. This is why this can't be Christ. He'd be swearing by himself. Verse 7, But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Here's my understanding of this difficult paragraph. The oath that the angel takes by raising his right hand goes back to Daniel chapter 12 verse 7. You might remember that. It's where Daniel is told, a horrible judgment is coming on the earth, but not yet. Seal it up. And an oath is taken by the angel back then. Now an oath is taken by the angel, and it basically says, now that seal is open. In other words, God's judgment the seventh trumpet could blow at any time. So share the good news with everybody in your family, with every friend you have, with every co-worker you have, with every enemy you know. Share the gospel of the good news. This angel's oath basically means time's up. The promise of Daniel has worked its way out in history. Christ has come. He died. He rose again. He ascended to the Father's right hand. He reigns there now. Time is up. We're in the end times. So share the good news. God plans to bring the mystery of his gospel to the earth so that it surges in the days when judgment is about to fall. I remember how full Emmanuel Baptist Church was on the Sunday right after Sem- September 11th, 2001, in South Minneapolis. Several new people, visitors, came to church after the towers had fallen. Church buildings will become obsolete when fire falls from heaven. Death will reign everywhere. Is there anyone near to death you know that you haven't shared the gospel with who needs saving? Are there nations, are there tribes and peoples and tongues where death of, of famine or disease or plague or oppression or natural disasters is riddling through the population and they have no hope or no cause to trust in Christ, for they've never heard the gospel. Verse 7, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery... When the Bible talks about mystery of God, it means how God is going to be both just and justifier to save ungodly sinners from Israel and from the Gentiles through faith in His Son. That gospel mystery is captured by this word, mystery of God, would be fulfilled just as He announced. It's compared just as. That's a comparison but to the word announced as he announced to his servants, the prophets. This English word announced that's in verse 7 is euangelidze or euangelidze sin. It basically means God preaching the good news to his servants, the prophets. That's how we know this mystery of God is a shorthand for the gospel itself. God gave to the prophets and the prophets proclaimed and were killed for it, and then it was fulfilled and enacted in Jesus' first coming, and now we have it through Old and the New Testaments, the gospel of God, that we are to proclaim to the lost in times of judgment. Listen to Joel. He says, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. This is, this is what Luke records, Peter preaches, quoting Joel in, in the moment of Pentecost, when Christ had ascended to be with the Father, so 2,000 years ago, and it's true all the way through the last 2,000 years and shall be till he returns. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass. You know this, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent, and be saved. That's why the book of Revelation is here. That's why the judgments are so fierce. That's why the horror of sin before the living God deserves judgment. That's why you and I have our stomachs turn when we think about the judgment against my sin and your sin, and all of a sudden, Revelation chapter 10 gives us our marching orders for our life as a church. Let's just do exactly what Jesus said, make disciples of all nations teaching them to obey all that he has commanded us, and he'll be with us even to the end of the age. Finally, sentence number four, the nations are lost, so give the good news. The nations are lost, so give the good news. Verses 8 through 11, and the voice that I heard from heaven, Christ again spoke to me again. Christ speaks in a language John understands, Greek specifically. Go. Same command. This is one of the words that triggered Matthew 28 in my mind. Nobody else has put this in any commentary, so be careful. Listen carefully. Weigh it carefully what I'm saying. Go. Take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel. The scroll, that is, that I, Christ, was alone worthy to open and all the seals are open. It's all being enacted. That scroll that surely I put in the hand of the angel and sent him down there to recommission you. You, John, go take that scroll. The one that is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. That sounds like supper for a lot of us, doesn't it? Mmm, that tastes good, but I'm going to pay for this later. Verse 10, and I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, in my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Why sweet? Because if you're a believer listening to me right now, you have read the Bible and somebody has shared the word of God with you and it has sunk so sweetly into your soul, you have said nobody could give me something more valuable or precious than what you've given me out of God's word. More than an apple of gold in a setting of silver, you have blessed me, you have strengthened me. It's happened to me in my life so many times I can barely count how many times the sweetness of the word of God has been like a grain cracker slathered with honey on it and I have just gobbled it down. Or even better, like, a, like, a, like an apple cider donut covered with honey. And then ap- honey crisp apples. And then something honey tasting to drink. And the word of God is even better. One of the sweetest pun intended ways for you to know that you're a believer is that the word of God is sweet to you. Just, just rest in this. Is there any verse in the Bible that makes you thrill with delight? If there is, God's got you. God's got you. You're his. You're sealed. But John also hears that when it goes into his stomach, just like the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah, it would turn bitter. Why? Why? Very simply. Because it requires the speaking of a hard and painful, bitter word to the nations that we've had to first speak to ourselves. We don't go to the nations telling them how bad they are with arrogance and condescension, swagger and boasting. We go to the nations telling them that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in all its sweetness can only be received by those for whom they perceive it as bitter unless God does a renewing, regenerating, quickening in their hearts. We had that happen to us. We too found the Word of God. Rejectable, ugly. Stomp it out. Pound on drums so that it can't be heard. Squeal sirens in the face of those proclaiming it. Get rid of those crazy people who read the Bible, for goodness sake. And and, and rip that Bible apart because I don't want them to read that Bible anymore. And I'm going to go ahead and eat that thing. You do that, buddy. May it save your very soul. It's probably going to be more bitter than he's prepared for. We have a witness of judgment to the nations. We have a witness of judgment to the church. Some people need to get lost before they get found. But none of that rings true unless we have first spoken a word of bitterness to ourselves. Naomi took her husband and two sons and left Bethlehem in disobedience to God, looking for food in Moab. Her sons grew and married daughters from Moab against the law of God. Her husband and both sons died in Moab. She came back not with two daughters-in-law, but one for one return back to Moab. The other, Ruth, was born again to follow Naomi's God. And Naomi arrives back among her friends 10 years after having left Bethlehem in repentance for acting in disbelief. And she says, I went away full and I came back empty. The Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. You're not ready to tell the nations about the bitterness of God's judgment unless you've also first and previously heard the Lord tell you a bitter word. But the sweetness is quick to follow. Grieving may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Here's my ending exhortation. Look at verse 9 again. John heard the voice of Christ to tell him to go get the scroll that's now open. The one Christ died and rose again to be worthy to open. And look what John does in such quick obedience. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. (laughs) So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. Far braver than sitting down at a meal in a faraway country. Far braver than eating a five flame dinner at a Thai restaurant. Far braver than the most courageous eating of live critters out in the wilderness. This is John going and saying, I will eat the scroll. I receive and identify with the plans and will of God for this world. I am fully ready for his bitterness to be inside me so that his sweetness might be there also. Give me the Lord's scroll that my Lord received from his Father, the one proclaiming all the judgment, the one he died and rose again to achieve. Let all that the scroll says be true in me, John says. Are you ready to say that? Are you ready to, to as it were, open your heart before the Lord? Let's do it right now. Go, and, go with me to the Lord in prayer as a faith family. Father, we come before you, and many of us are saying yes to this prayer that I'm going to pray for myself, and they're going to be praying in agreement for themselves. Lord, we come to the angel and we say, give us the scroll. The one you opened, the plans you're enacting, the judgment you have prepared, just and right and good, the judgment you averted for us by taking it upon yourself on the cross, and our role, our clear, purposeful, right, suitable, fitting role, to be givers of the good news today and until you return, we receive. It is sweet to us, but we're ready for the bitterness too. These are lost nations. They will hate us. The bitterness implies there's still sin in the world. There's still sin in us. There's still sin in our church. There's still sin in this nation. There's still sin on the planet. That's why there's bitterness. And we agree with you, Lord. We're confessing that we agree. With the sweet, grant the bitter. And remind us that both make this scroll our very food and life. The devil lied to Eve, take and eat, and sin came into the world. Jesus said to the disciples, take and eat, and the cross of Christ achieved our salvation. Now the angel says to John in his commissioning and to us, take and eat. And the end of the world is ready to come. Would you find the landing in every person in the hearing of my voice well prepared to share the good news of Jesus Christ when you come back, oh Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and respond together.